Hey team, welcome back and welcome to episode 53 of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. In this episode, we're going to talk about four big rocks. If you're not familiar with rocks and pebbles and gravel and water and that story or analogy, Google and come back and listen. Today, we're going to talk about the four things that matter in a transition. Typically, we know there's lots of little details and we can certainly get caught in the weeds, but we're going to focus today on the big pieces, the big rocks that really can make a difference, when to give, when not to give, what to consider and how to do it. So before we get going, Mr. Loretto, welcome back. What's up, Chrissy? I heard you cheated on me last week. I, I felt did. very taken advantage of. <laughs> you, you and Don had a good, I did. good session. I had a good little chat about yeah. risk and valuation. If you didn't listen to it, go back and listen to episode yeah. 52. But it's it was awesome. a great one. It was fun to have a female voice on here for once. Yes, uh, we were uh, chatting it up just a few minutes ago about what do we call this freaking episode? So we were kind of bouncing around. I was like, do you think the listeners know about the rocks? <laughs> the rocks. I don't know if they know the rocks, but they need to look it up. Yes, look uh, it up. We'll I know my sense. generation knew about the little puzzle of the rocks and the pebble, but I've often used it in lectures as well. So I like the four big rocks. I let's, know. let's get them knocked out. And I think your team is the detail of the pebbles and the sand and the water. We are the pebbles, the sand, the yeah, water, yeah. and sometimes the rocks. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, let's freaking dive in. I, this is something that I certainly wanted to hit on today because it seems like no matter what our calls are about, there's always this big rock that Mm -hmm. we're talking about. So I think these are definitely the four biggest. And so uh, let's get this thing rolling, girl. You doing okay? I'm doing okay. Okay. We, you know, (laughs) it's a busy time of year, right? It's a busy time of year. So we're good. We're getting some closings happening. This is the time of year as a kind of a big picture guy that, you know, is an owner of a CPA firm and you got these October 15th deadlines. We got a lot of closings. This time mm-hmm. of year, you know, at, for NDP, I just kind of tap dance around all these people. <laughs> Are we good? Can I say hello? Do I kind of always a smiley guy. Do I need to like leave? <laughs> so when you walk into my head's on my desk, yeah, like I yeah. can't do it anymore. <laughs> no, happy to be here. Okay. So these are things that keep in mind as we go through these things. I also think these are things that people get stuck on. Yep. And sometimes they shouldn't get stuck on them as much as they do. These are the things that if you Google anything about dental transitions, you'll find some article about some big component here and everyone has their ideas and opinions. And so we're going to cover them today. We're going to start with the biggest of all rocks, which is price. We spent a lot of time. We talked about valuations last week, but let's talk about price. You have some good examples. Let's talk about how people get stuck here. Yeah. So just remember, price is just one of these four major variables that we're going to look at. And obviously, it is a big thing. If you're going to pay for something, especially if in your eyes, you're going to overpay for something that we just need to look at this whole big picture and always kind of take a step back and say, does this make sense? And so what I want to do, this has come up in the last couple of weeks where people are so stuck and I just want to like, it's such an amazing deal. Like it's okay to sometimes overpay for something. And so I'm just, I'm a numbers guy. So I want us to just hear the numbers, what we're talking about. So I have a a big practice here. It's a $2 million business. And the great thing about $2 million businesses is that they will typically have good overheads. And so in this example, the practice overhead is 55%. 
or to say it this way, the business makes $900,000. So when you look at that, you might say, hey, evaluation for this practice might be 70% of collections. Okay, so now all of a sudden the price is at 1.4. But what I want us to look at is the difference is what if this practice was for sale and it was for 95% of collections? Craziest thing ever. Everyone on Facebook, everyone on your dental little group or colleagues or any local CPA will tell you this is the dumbest thing ever. Why in the heck would you ever pay 95% of a practice? It makes no sense. And I'm not telling you to do it. What I'm telling you is just look at the math and let you make the decision based on this simplest of approaches. And so if the business was for sale at $1.4 million, we'd run a debt service. So the bank is going to look at this and they're going to run cash flows. We're going to run cash flows. You're going to run cash flows. You'd have to pay debt on, in this example, $1.4 million, which that means on a per year basis, you would have to pay $170,000 a year to the bank. That's like a 10-year amortization, 4% interest rate. So you go to work, do the dentistry, you're left over with $730,000 after you pay the 170 for this 70% purchase price of 1.4. So the craziest thing would be to look at the math on the same business that nets 900, but now let's pay 95% of the practice. And this could be because of a location, it could be because of it's an orthodontic practice. Not seeing this much today in, you know, COVID period, but we're still seeing in, in some cases some practices that are commanding really high prices. What I want to illustrate here is that the price of 1.9 million, 95% of collections, it would generate debt payments of $230,000. Say it this way, is that business after debt is either going to make $670,000 for a really high price or 730,000 for a really good price, okay? So we have this variance, in this case it's $60,000 that is actually the variance, and that's gonna be on a per year basis. And of course that is a higher debt, so we, we get to depreciate that, we get to write off that interest. So the dollar for dollar, it's about a $60,000 variance, but when we write that off, the dollar to dollar maybe down to 40, okay? So if someone says, are you willing to walk away from making 600 or $700,000 for maybe a 30 to $40,000 difference? I can't answer that. All we can do is simply show you what these higher prices for practices and help remove the emotion and help you make this decision if we just focus on price. And we'll talk about the other rocks, but I wanna spend some time here because a lot of your emotion is going in just to this price. Yep, absolutely, and I think that's true. I mean, I think when we talk about price, the only time I ever get real worked up about price is if the cash flows aren't there, right? If we're priced at that really high multiple and the cash flows don't make sense, so mm -hmm. we're not talking about that level of cash. And that can be if it's just a smaller practice too, right? The cash flows have to be able to support the debt service that we're getting. But oftentimes it's when you need, the bank has a limit on how much they can lend and I need that variance, right? Like I, it's only $40,000 in difference in price or maybe it's $100,000 difference in price, but I need that variance for working capital or I need that variance for improvements, like major improvements to the practice that are required, not just that I want, but that I have to have. And the seller's not willing to do financing and the other terms of the deal don't make sense. 
I'll get a little stickier on price when that is the case, but I'm not going to get worked up on 20 or 30 or 40 or $50,000 just because the numbers don't prove out that on a month to month basis that cash flow matters as much as some of these other terms that we're going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. Again, it's the $2 million business. Does it make 900? Does a $2 million business make 500? And those yeah. examples where it makes 500 and has a 75% overhead in these interviews that we have with you before we take you know a client on, we're going to run because yeah. this is not going to make sense. I don't care what location, what specialty, it's just not going to be able to justify a high price. So it's only when the practices have these ridiculously great overheads with lots of cash, are we a little bit more lenient, a little bit more flexible, and a little bit more of kind of holding you and taking some of those motions and still pushing you towards the deal because it just makes sense. The car is just so much faster than the other cars. And you're going to buy an old broken car trying to figure out how to make it work. And this one is just like Ferrari type speed. And I like fast things. I don't mind. And one more example, and we'll move on, is the best example I can give you where it is a buyer's market. And that market is in surgery. There's very few number Mm -hmm. of surgeons that will come out and to practice, they can easily go do a startup for six to $700,000. They can easily run and be at a million dollars between the 13th and their 24th month. It's hard to justify to a surgeon to buy something. Now, if this surgeon has an opportunity to buy something, they're also going to be caught up on price. You know, know, they're a little bit more strong-willed than the rest of you. (laughs) No offense, surgeons, because i got a lot of you that I work with, but you're a unique breed. The compliment. So sometimes surgeons are going to be bent, but I only want to pay X amount for this practice. But what would you be willing to pay for a $2 million or $3 million or $4 million oral surgery practice? And let's say it had a 30% overhead. Let's say it had a 35% overhead. So now all of a sudden, the same $2 million business I was referencing earlier, now all of a sudden nets $1.4 million. So are you willing to pay more for that business and the answer is, if you work with us, we're going to tell you that's valued at a higher price. And I'd be willing to do something out of the box with that particular seller because it makes so much sense. Because it would take literally, in my opinion, probably a decade to get that type of practice mm-hmm. with that efficiencies down to the 30% level. I have seen it, but these are very, very unique practices. Say it differently. It's that not just Ferrari, but it's the Ferrari that wins a championship. It just is so much faster. You're just willing to pay for it. You're paying for a winning car, a winning horse, something you're going to pay more. And it's just simply going to go faster along the way. And that's what I don't mind paying for. Yep, absolutely. The next thing that comes along after we talk about price is how I think everyone knows to talk about this, but no one knows really why or how it impacts them or like what they just kind of hear the terminology and that's allocation. So the asset allocation, you're buying, you're doing an asset sale you've agreed on this price. How is that price going to be split and how is it going to be taxed for you and the seller? I'm going to be honest, this is something that impacts both people. There are different pulls and competing kind of interest here. So buyers want one thing and sellers want one thing. I will say generally it has a bigger impact on the seller And therefore, we generally use this as a give and say this is something that matters more to the seller, is going to impact them more, 
And therefore, this is a give. We're going to have our buyers give this to the sellers and we're going to push harder from a seller's perspective if we're representing the seller to say this is kind of what's fair. And honestly, it doesn't really change if we're who we're working for. Like we kind of push for that same mix because we feel like it's beneficial to kind of both parties the way we kind of recommend it. And just as a recap, asset allocation, there's tangible and there's intangible if you haven't listened to another episode, tangible assets. So that's the equipment, your supplies, your non-compete. Those are all things that are going to be able to be depreciated over a shorter amount of time. And those for a seller are taxed at the ordinary income rates, right? So that's for most sellers, that 35, 37%. The intangible amounts are goodwill and patient records. For a buyer, those are going to be written off over 15 years, so longer than those tangible assets. And for a seller, they're going to be taxed at your capital gains rate, so 15 to 20%. So clearly, the majority of the sale, I would say 70 to 80%, is always going to be allocated to intangible. And if you think about it, that makes sense. It's the profitability, it's the reputation, it's kind of why you're buying the business. And then that other 20 to 30% is tangible, which represents the like hard assets of the business, the equipment, the supplies, et cetera. But all of that equipment isn't really worth a whole heck of a lot if you don't have you and the seller there kind of with that reputation sharing that. So that asset allocation, big buzzword, lots of thought, like lots of discussion around it. And we really see it as a give to the seller because of the impact that it has on them compared to most buyers. Yeah. So let's, let's put numbers to it. So it's a million three collection practice. The price is $1 million. You agree to this. So it's a million dollars. So then we look at the value of the assets, the value of supplies, put a number to it. Then we have a dollar amount allocated, as Chrissy said, to this goodwill, roughly. Mm-hmm. $800,000 is the goodwill. $200,000 is this uh, furniture, friction, or equipment, you know, this tangible piece. And so you as a buyer, what you need to know, you're going to get to write off the entire million dollars. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you get to depreciate the entire million bucks and you get to depreciate and write off the interest. And then for the seller, they receive a million bucks. And so they have to pay tax on a portion of the 20% of the 800,000 in this example, and maybe 35 to 37% of the remaining 200,000 that this furniture fixture competes. So the give here is can we put a little bit more to the seller to give them a little love? so that they have to pay less taxes. Hey, seller, we're gonna give a little bit here. We may take a little bit on the price. We may take a little bit on maybe how the accounts receivable. Mm -hmm. And we may take a little bit on this building. It may take a little bit on how this transaction is gonna work from a work back period. So there's there's a couple of things here, but this is definitely what we wanna do is educate you is where we can give to the seller. Sellers, if you're listening, we're gonna give here. We may take a little bit back from you in other places. So it's, it's a game that we need to move around these four to five shells. Let's play with them and figure out how to make it fair for all sides. Yeah, we've absolutely had a seller who has had multiple offers and has taken the offer that had less purchase price, but a better tax allocation. Mm -hmm. And we've had sellers turn down buyers who submitted a letter of intent where the allocation was just super out of line with what's normal. They allocated like 90% to tangible goods or something. So it does matter and it is important. I don't want to downplay that it's like not an integral piece and it's just a give one way or the other, but there's definitely a relationship between this piece and these other pieces. And and again, just proving out that like price is not everything. So yeah, yeah, we've had buyers where they went out and hired CPAs that had no experience in dentistry, and they put these ridiculous offers in because that was their experience and or maybe another field, and it was embarrassing. You yeah. know, it, it really our seller received it and was like, "What the heck?" And I'm like, "I agree." It's almost have to call the buyer out and say, "Look." 
I'm going to make a guess here. Your CPA is doesn't understand dentistry. He's never been involved in this transaction. You're like, yeah, I don't really know. Well, I do know <laughs> because I can see how this was done. And you're going to mess this deal up. Yeah. So it's important to understand how these dental transactions work and, again, what's fair on both sides of this deal. So, yeah, asset allocations is important. This is definitely our give to our seller and our four rocks example. So another big rock, number three, is the building and the lease. Now, this is an area we're clearly not real estate experts. This is not an area that we kind of fully kind of negotiate as far as pulling comps. But clearly, you cannot buy a practice without having a space to operate in. And that building and that lease are integral parts of the practice transition process. And so those are always included in a letter of intent. They're always part of the negotiation. Your lender's going to need confirmation of what the terms are and kind of what's happening. What we often find with the building is from one side or the other, from the seller or the buyer, there's a want or a desire to either keep the building and I want to keep it and I want to hold it for rental income purposes if I'm the seller. And at the same time, maybe the buyer says, hey, I really want to buy this building. Mm -hmm. Let's talk some examples and kind of talk about a strategy if you're a buyer or a seller in that position. Right. So let's let's go back and forth a little bit. We've got the price, you know, the seller feels like, okay, I was this price at 800 but sure I'll accept the 700 but the seller comes back with you know I want a five-year lease and so what we got to do is we need to figure out did we get a fair price for the practice one okay next thing is are we getting a fair lease and so I ran some numbers or we ran some numbers today based on a six thousand dollar rent so when you play with a $6,000 rent, it essentially means that that square footage is equating to approximately an $850,000 building value. And so we played with that and said, well, what happens if we finance this 850 piece of real estate? Here's our principal and interest payment. Here's our tax. Here's our insurance. And so you could see that that's about where the value of this business is. So let's just say for fun, that you get a fair price for the practice and you want to purchase this building in this example, an $850,000 building, you're going to need 20%. You're going to need $170,000 as a down payment for the real estate. And so it's going to be very difficult for typically young buyers to have that. Now, if you've got it, great. I'm all about having a balanced portfolio, including owning real estate, including owning the real estate that I'm going to work in for the next 30 years. So I'm going to be excited about that. But let's just say that the seller needs a little give here or you need to give give a little bit. I'm okay with doing a lease. And let me show you kind of the math. First of all, if you don't have the $170,000, I want to put from an advisory standpoint language in the lease that allows you to purchase the building as soon as you can. And perhaps it's no sooner than five years or something like that. And that way it gives a little bit of money to our seller. And so they get this rental income of six grand a month and it goes this for 60 months for five years. And so you're like, well, why would I do this? It just seems like lost money. Well, it's not that much when we really look at it. When you rent from somebody, you're getting a business deduction. If you buy from somebody, you're getting, in this case, you buy the building, you're getting a business deduction. You're appreciating the building, you're writing it off. It's a wash there as far as what you're getting as far as a benefit. Now, where you lose is you may lose on the real estate from potentially that the value of the real estate appreciates. So the building you purchased at 850, maybe, big giant maybe, appreciated and it went up. 
maybe it declined in value. There's no prediction as far as what commercial real estate is going to be, especially as I'm sitting here today looking outside of commercial real estate that doesn't have a car parked in the parking lot. So I'd be real leery as far as commercial real estate values on an ongoing basis. But let's just play the game that the business, the piece of real estate stays the same from value. What we really gave up over a five-year period is about $110,000 of equity. So in other words, if we would have made the payment and we purchased the real estate, we would have gained $110,000 of equity in the real estate. Or say it this way, we basically would have accumulated or gained maybe $20,000 a year because we wanted to purchase the real estate. Again, it's a gain and I want to do that. But I don't want to walk away from perhaps my earlier example of a $2 million business that was netting $730, but I got so hung up on the real estate that I'm walking away from a deal over twenty grand. I don't want to get so hung up on a deal that I overpaid for the practice instead of 70%, maybe I paid it 80%. I get so hung up on the deal that my lease rate was not 6000 it was 7000 The ability to look at one of these big rocks and say, does it make sense to fight or does it make sense to negotiate or just simply walk away. When we're talking about making hundreds of thousands of dollars and it's a better deal than any other deal you have on the table, I don't want to walk. I don't want to pick a fight. I want to figure out how to facilitate and negotiate this thing to get you to close. Yeah. And there are plenty, I mean, let's be honest, there are plenty of practices across the country who never own their real estate, right? I mean, the real estate's too expensive on the West Coast or East Coast, and they lease the entire time. I also think there's a little bit of emotion of knowing who you're paying your rent to. If the practice you're looking at buying didn't own the real estate at all and they rented from a third-party landlord, you'd have no issue assigning over the lease and moving on and maybe knowing you're going to move down the road. But because you know you're paying the seller and they're profiting off of you, there's like this kind of like, ugh, that goes along with it. So I completely agree. And I think it's important to protect yourself and know that you're paying. I'm not saying pay, you know, 100% over what fair market value is. Pay a fair market rate, pay, get a right of first refusal, get an option if you need to. But, you know, I totally agree with you. Don't make it too much. So on that emotion front, I didn't really thought about this, but do you know how many times a private equity group buys the real estate from these dentists? Zero. Zero times. So let that sit in. These are business people. Hell, hail. Uh, yeah. <laughs> hail. <laughs> hail. Uh, uh, Yale, Harvard, uh, Wharton grads, and they're all looking and they're like, nope, I don't want to own the real estate. And so don't get that caught up on the real estate. Yeah, it's an and, opportunity, yeah. but don't let that be the decision maker. Well, and we have a practice that we're working with right now, and the practice is too small for the seller to work back, but he needs some compensation and he needs just a little bit more. And so yeah. the building rent is sufficing for that so the buyer yeah. can buy sooner and exactly. uh, be 100% owner. So again, you have rent no matter what. You're going to have a mortgage no matter what. And so think long-term, not short-term, and kind of try to not be wrapped up in that. Yeah, this doesn't have to be some $2 million example. It could be a nice $600,000 practice. And, you know, the seller needs $3,000 a month from his, you know, East Texas location. If that gets the deal done, you can look inside the business and look to see and do your chart audit and and to figure out that this $600,000 is going to be a million dollar practice and look to see this business is going to make you $400,000 a year. And it's going to cost you that you didn't buy the building and given Johnny three grand 
give Johnny three grand. Yeah. We are going to tell you that all day long. So just, it's a component to this. I know sometimes there's certain groups of people that are just adamant about the real estate. And again, let's maneuver that rock around. If they can get you to become an owner sooner, then let's play with that a little bit. Yep. And that kind of transitions us to rock number four, which is seller work back. So like, what does the seller need? Why are they working back? What if they need more than you think you want to pay them? I'm going to start us off because I think this is an important component. And then I know you have an example you want to share. I want to start off with kind of that number. I think the number, sometimes people say, well, what should we pay? And clearly there's kind of a norm, right, for all the specialties. And we've talked about that kind of on previous episodes. Oftentimes, like if you pay them within a normal range, like what the percentage is, I'm going to use the percentages of production or collections here as an example, doesn't matter really. Like when you really do the math. So if you had a seller who was working back in the practice and maybe they're only going to work back for like six to nine months and and just kind of on a tapered schedule and they were going to do roughly like $300,000 of production. That's what we kind of projected. The difference in paying them 35% versus 30% is roughly $15,000. You'd pay them $105,000 if you paid them 35% or 90 if you pay them 30. Okay. It doesn't matter in the big scheme of things if the cash flows overall of that practice work, but when it does matter is mentally for the seller who's working back to know that they're making 35 versus 30 that they'd pay an associate. So sometimes you have to figure out what rock matters the most to the other party in this transition. I have worked with sellers who would take a huge hit on their price, but need to know that they're making the biggest per diem or the biggest percentage they can. I've also worked with people who say, I just want my price and a fair asset allocation and I'll work for free for three months. So you have to kind of figure out again, how to move these rocks around to make it work for you and do not get caught up that you're paying 35% or you're an orthodontist and you're paying your seller $2,500 per diem when $1,500 is the max you've heard, which we've had happen. You have to kind of put these things into perspective, run the math and see what matters the most. Most of the time when we do this, if a seller is going to work back a significant amount of time, the bigger bang for your buck from a negotiation is how much you're paying them on work back and not the price reduction. Great story is um, just hearing you talk always makes me think of something. So good buddy, Drew Ferris out in beautiful Santa Barbara, California. He brought me this deal and great practice, great overhead, loved it. But the seller was pitching him that he was going to become an owner at like year five and year seven. So I'm like, Drew, don't mess us up. I love it. But I don't like the terms as far as how long it's going to take. So we've got to move the time frame up. So go back to the rocks. Full price, I want zero negotiation. If I go to the asset allocation seller, I want to give you the best asset allocation we can legally get away with. Lease, I will let you own the building. As far as me working as an associate, I know you've offered me $1,000 a day. I'd actually prefer to work for $700 a day. And so I'm going to work for two days for 700 And then the third day, I'm going to work for free to market and grow the practice. And then in return, when you work back for me one day when you're the associate, I commit to paying you $1,500 a day. And I never forget Drew going, Charles, I'm paying you for this? <laughs> and I said, yes, Drew, you are paying me for this. And the reason you're paying me for this is because... We haven't yet asked for something. What we're going to ask for 
is the ability to purchase this practice at a sooner rate than what's been presented to you. We're not purchasing half at five and half at seven. We're going to purchase half in 18 months and the other half between three to four years. We're going to offer three. We'll settle on four. And he goes, well, why? And you run the numbers and say, here are the millions of dollars you're leaving on the table by not adjusting these rocks around. I get it. Are you sure I should ask for only 700 a day? I go, Drew, ask for $700 a day. Tell him because I need you to come back with the 18 months because this is a multi-million dollar decision. Get me the answer. Once we're there, I'll help facilitate the deal. And you can look him up. He's a successful guy. And this is the true story. (laughs) And uh, so it's just fun playing with these pieces and being able to tell the individual that hasn't played the shell game of what to do. Yep. You know, so it's a great opportunity. Please present these unique opportunities to us. And so we can move these parts around and kind of show you what it looks like. Yep. Clearly, there are so many more you know, pebbles and gravel and water that need to fill kind of the holes around these big rocks. But these big pieces are what you'll talk about first and they're what will drive kind of the overall train. So I think it's important. Um, Anything else before we wrap it up today? Yeah, I I know that when we started this podcast, it was always with the intent for our buyers. And we have Mm -hmm. a, a huge number of sellers that follow along. And so the same thing would apply to you today. Mm-hmm. So I want you to put yourself as a seller. You reach out and say, I don't know if I'm ready. Guess what we're going to do? Don't yep. play with your rocks. Yep. We're going to figure out how to make you more money on the price. We may maybe figure out that we're going to command a higher price. We may figure out how to leave the associate in there for a little mm-hmm. bit longer period of time. We may figure out how to sell the practice over an installment mm-hmm. so that we can do that in fractions. We may keep the lease for you over 10 years. You need money for 10 years and that's what you need. Then I'm only going to present that option to all of my buyers because I played with your rocks and figured out what makes sense for you. And I can, without emotion, just say, hey, I think this is going to work for the buyer, the buyer's representation and a bank. I think this all makes sense. So you know, this is not just about how to figure out how to negotiate the part from the buyer, but it's no, also from the seller as well. And so it's fun, whoever we're working with, and sometimes with both. And just and the goal of these episodes are always just to educate the sides so you can actually see it and understand what the other person is actually feeling or, or maybe giving up in, in their situation. 100%. Yeah. I mean, the education here about what these are and why they matter. And even if you're a seller and you're listening, you're going to have a buyer who's going to be looking at these things. And so just realizing like, what do I need and what do I want and really what matters to me on both sides and keeping that bigger picture? Because at the end of the day, you're transitioning a business and you want the kind of overall deal to be fair, not just one component of it. So... Well, the Big Rocks Puzzle. The Big Rocks Puzzle. <laughs> Someone should count how many times we've said rocks on this episode. It's more than any other any other episode for sure. Well, that's it for today, guys. Thanks for following. Like us on social and let us know if you want to hear a special topic here on Transition Talk as we finish out 2020 whoop, whoop, and move on to 2021. That's it for today. Thanks, All right, guys. Thanks, thanks Christy. Awesome.